0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at AskChrisShelton at gmail.com. That email address is below in the description section of this video. Feel free to send me any and all questions you might have about Scientology, destructive cults, coercive control, or anything else you would like me to answer. I love your guys' questions, and they just keep coming in. I got a really long queue, but... I want you to keep sending them. <laughs> okay. Uh, I wanted to say Merry Christmas, everybody, because you will not. Um, this week that we are coming into now is going to be Christmas week. So um, so Merry Christmas, everybody. And I hope you are having a decent or at least uh, survivable holiday season here this year. I think, uh, you know, the vaccines are starting to be delivered. We're starting to see some uh, change. And hopefully things will Uh, start moving in the direction they need to. But for now, why don't we just talk about some of the things you guys want to talk about? So let's get to your questions. Oh, but I wanted to play a little game with you guys. If you can see what's different on the wall behind me or behind me in my space here, um, let me know in the comment section and I will uh, give the first person I see a, a, a big thumbs up on that if you can see what's different. I am experimenting a little bit with uh, what I want to do in the background here. All right. And um, I did also want to say thank you, everybody, for your um, happy birthday wishes. I really, really appreciate it. And for your Christmas wishes and support, thank you very much. And uh, those of you who don't, you might not know, on Patreon, we now have annual memberships turned on. So if you want to, Um, pledge a sort of, you know, lump sum amount, I think it's a 5% discount, um, and you can um, just do it that way and support my channel uh, through Patreon through an annual membership rather than a continuing monthly membership. I actually kind of like the monthly memberships more, but it's 1,000% up to you how you want to support me and my channel here, and I am 1,000% behind anything you guys want to do with that. Okay, that all being said, let's get on with your questions. Angelique Anonymous, you've probably had a ton of feedback on this, but I would like to hear more about your thoughts about Tom Cruise's supposedly leaked audio where he berated some of the film crew of his Mission Impossible 7 movie. A lot of the public who are not aware of his narcissistic tendencies have applauded his threats and actions as taking a hard stance on COVID precautions, which is understandable if they are not aware of his close relationship to David Miscavige. I've also seen from quite a few ex Scientologists that his tone forty, quote unquote, and delivery, shouting, and threats of termination were pretty much what would encompass a miscavige style rant to Sea Org members. Today there are reports that at least five of the crew members have quit as a result of this leaked rant being made public. Do you think that the audio was intended for the public to hear to paint crews in the favorable light of being a tough leader and concern for the health of the crew? It seemed to me like it was more for the benefit of his own production company and future career. Also, do you think the crew left of their own volition? I know he is surrounded 24-7 by Scientologists, so were the crew members of the church? Or were they heavily investigated and vetted before being hired to work in such close proximity to Cruz? Could they have been put through some sort of unofficial light auditing by Cruz's staff to see about their possible PTSness? If they quit on their own, could they have been encouraged, quote-unquote, to leave by Cruz's people if the church felt that they would speak out, or would they have to sign more NDAs on the way out? I have so many questions about this situation, just because I imagine that with COVID precautions on top of lockdowns, quarantines, and the general tightness of film production, that this situation could even be leaked out in the first place. Okay, thanks for your question. And we did discuss this a little bit on the Critical Conversation show that we did this uh, Friday night, so you guys can also check that out. And I will encourage you to please check out my call-in show that my wife, Melissa, and I do every Friday here. All right, enough with all the, <laughs> the plugs here. So, okay, Tom Cruise, leaked audio. Yeah, so apparently there have actually been two incidents of this, because when I looked this up today... The Sun is is further reporting that there was another eruption followed on Tuesday night as the news of his original rant emerged. A source said, quote, The first outburst was big, but things haven't calmed since. Tension has been building for months, and this was the final straw. Since it became public, there has been more anger, and several staff have walked. But Tom just can't take any more after all the links they have gone to just to keep filming at all. He's upset others aren't taking it as seriously as him. In the end, he's the one who carries the can. All right. So that was the extent of the quote from whatever source they have on set. Um, okay, so first off, it didn't surprise me at all that uh, that kind of a rant could have leaked off a set and been uploaded to the internet. Anyone who was standing around there could have turned their phone on, clicked record, And once he was going on a roll there, and I believe that such a person would be motivated to do that because this wouldn't have been the first time that there would have been such behavior by Tom Cruise. And they probably would have meant, okay, something needs to be done about this. Let's get this recorded and get this out. That's one way I could see how it could have been easily leaked from the set. These are not closed sets where everybody's phones are being taken and things like that, at least as far as I know, they're not. Yes, there are NDAs and things that you sign, and I'm quite sure that Tom and his production company are quite on top of that. But if they can't find the person who did it, then, you know, those NDAs are so much worthless paper. The, um, the five people walking apparently is in response to some of this tension and upset that Tom has been creating on the set. Now, this comes from, of course, a valid concern about the safety and lives of the crew and the people involved because COVID is real and the vaccines are not yet being distributed there on the set and they are shooting in Italy and other places around in Europe. And um, they have had, and I'm sure they and every Hollywood production has had a real hard time trying to keep operating at all. It is really, really difficult. And, and of course, it should be difficult because they are uh, right up against the edge of every regulation and control we would want to put in place in order to keep people away from each other so they don't spread the stupid virus. Um, and apparently the pressure to get this done and enforce compliance and make this happen and make the, sa- the set a safe place and still get the movie shot Has been a months long problem. Uh, There was a report also in here that months ago there were crew who were coming down with COVID, and um, crews had to hold an emergency meeting with director Christopher McGuire about that to sort out what are we going to do about this? Because they can't just have people getting sick and dying on the, you know, when they're trying to just make a movie. So I get the pressure and the real world concerns and the real world problems uh, of this situation. And so it's not that it's a nothing burger, or there's nothing going on, or Tom is just overreacting, because, you know, it's valid. Now, that being said, in terms of the subject matter of the problem being valid, was Tom's reaction to it valid? Well, clearly, no. No one, does, No one, as a grown-ass adult, needs to be talked to the way that Tom Cruise was ranting and screaming at these people and threatening them and threatening their jobs. And yet, that's Tom Cruise. So now, um, I want to stress here the thing that I'm seeing in the reports, which uh, no one else is really talking about, and I'm I'm a little surprised, although it would take some—maybe a few more days of some investigations or reporting on this—but I believe that we would find a repeating pattern of similar behavior, and I think that's what prompted people to leave. Anybody can excuse or apologize for or forgive a one-off on the part of anybody else. I mean, we, we're very forgiving as a species, and, and it's okay to do that because we can all lose our shit from time to time. And we actually should be granted a little bit of latitude to be able to do that because we are all imperfect creatures at best. And the pressures and vagaries of life can be very, very overwhelming. So I understand anyone having a bad day, taking it out on other people, being upset, But I also would expect that, you know, grown ass adults who have childish temper tantrums like that would come back and do the mature thing and apologize and make up for what they did. And I don't, you know, particularly see any evidence Cruz did that. And the reports are that he's not, that things are, you know, just continuing to be very, very tense. I believe that a lot of that tension comes from the fact that that was not a purposeful leak, that Tom Cruise did not want that information out, that he was acting that way on set I think it's embarrassing to him, and I think he's now got a PR problem he has to deal with. There are a ton of Tom apologists and and fans who will say and do anything for him because they like his movies. It's weird, but it's true. People will forgive anything if they, you know, if you entertain them. Uh, it's it's actually a little sad as far as I'm concerned, but that is the truth. So you have a whole contingent of people who are just giving Tom a pass on this. Well, of course they can, because they're not the people who have to work for him. <laughs> you know? And if you you know, are on the set there and you have to work for the guy, then it sucks. I listened to that many times. I've listened to this recording now, and it sounds exactly like the way we would be talked to in the Sea Org. I mean, it's almost word for word. And that's a light rant, by the way. There, have, there were much, much, much more intense um, rants with the, the potential of physical... Uh, repercussions. Um, I was called at one time. Um, well, one time I was assaulted, you know, by a by a female executive, Jenny Devoc. And another time I was um, almost. I mean, I was really in fear. I, I there was the Sea Org Missionaire from the base who had come into pack. Same time uh, Jenny Devoc did actually, and he um, he called me over, and he was. Furious. I mean, he was almost shaking. He was so mad, and he was freaking me out. And he's like, "Get over here!" And he made me stand within inches of his face while he laid into you know my face and uh, gave me the what for for being invisible and not being around and and not doing my job, et cetera. All just much nonsense. But that's what they do when they are giving you what's called a face ripping or a severe reality adjustment. These are terms in Scientology, in the Sea Org specifically for what you get, in SRA, uh, when you need to have your head adjusted, right? And this goes back, and I'm, I've mentioned this before in the distant past, I think, on some question on this show, but let me, uh, let me say again that this goes back to a Hubbard policy on how to deal with people as an executive of a Scientology organization. Um, this policy covers the fact that people have reactive minds. They have these parts of their mind that are stimulus response, that feed them commands based on situational um, th- factors that, you know, that reproduce earlier situational factors where you were in a bad way, right? You get bit by a dog years ago. It's very painful, all that. Um, I've explained that so many times, I'm you know, I'm not going to explain it again. But because we have these reactive minds, Hubbard says, they impinge on a person. The reactive mind as a subconscious mind is exerting pressure and control on your body, on you, on your thetan, <laughs> you know, on you as a spiritual entity, right? And you, in response to that, not knowing, being ignorant or unaware of, this, of this, the, the very existence of the reactive mind, you think it's you. You think you're doing these crazy stimulus response, acting out kind of things that don't really make a lot of sense, or not very logical, like ranting or screaming, but in this case, like violating COVID regulations. Okay, let's look at this from Tom Cruise's point of view. He's in charge of this thing. He has spent millions of dollars on this project. He has spent countless hours trying to figure out how to keep the crew safe and comply with all these regulations. And then here are a couple of people, apparently what set them off was a couple of people standing too close to one another while, you know, while watching a a playback or something from a scene. So they were just not too, you know, they were were not close enough together and maybe there was a mask problem. I couldn't quite tell from that. So his response to that is, well, here are a couple people who's, who are so out of present time, who are so not paying attention, who are so impinged on by their reactive mind to act in a slack, non-regulatory, out-ethics manner. This is how Cruz would be thinking about this, that, you know, using the Scientologies, right, the Scientology language, that he felt that he had to go and impinge on them harder than their reactive mind is impinging on them, okay? That's the Hubbard policy, is you have to create a too gruesome, a thing that is too gruesome to confront, excuse me, to confront. So the punishment, right, the, the, the repercussions, the consequences of your actions um, have to be so gruesome that you would not even contemplate allowing that to happen again, so this is where punishments like going and scrubbing toilets with toothbrushes or cleaning the galley or, you know, scrubbing uh, dishes until four in the morning or cleaning out trash cans or getting thrown overboard or, 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 or the endless litany of punishments that the Scientology can inflict on its members, especially, again, in the Sea Org. So Cruz is applying that policy of, I need to impinge on you harder then your bank, your reactive mind is impinging on you and get you to snap into present time and realize, hey, you're fucking up. You need to knock it off. And from here on out, keep yourself in such a state of mindfulness and readiness that you, you know, because it's too gruesome to consider the the alternative, right? Like getting fired would be a too gruesome. That would be an example of that. Or again, physical or emotional punishments. Psychological punishments. So that's the attitude that Cruz comes at this with, okay, is that people have to be impinged upon. And I don't particularly agree that that's the way that you should deal with subordinates. I've been an executive in and out of Scientology, I've run people, and I um, have always had much more positive results by appealing to people's humanity and intelligence. But there are times when people fuck up. And when they do, you have to, you know, kind of make sure that they understand that what they did was wrong. Cruz went too far, of course, in his rants. And you can see there's a lot of pressure on his head about this, and he's not taking it well. And I think that's really what this sort of indicates. Now, when it comes to your, you, you throughout your question, you are asking about the church's influence in this. And I, um, I am not in a position to be able to, to clearly and knowledgeably tell you where the church's influence ends and Tom Cruise's and the production companies and the insurance companies and all the other things that are involved in a Hollywood production, where that comes into play. I don't think the church is running the, the Mission Impossible productions. I think Tom Cruise is. I don't think the church is interested in running Tom's movie productions, but I do think that the church is interested in Tom and in what Tom can provide for the church in terms of money, in terms of new members, in terms of publicity. And of course, this is going to reflect negatively. And there's already thousands and thousands of comments all over social media about Tom and the Scientology connection with this. So this was there, I have there's no world where I believe that this was purposefully leaked. And um, because Tom and the church are are way, way too sensitive to negative PR. And Tom would never put something out knowingly that would create a, a, a knowing possibility of a bad image for him. He is someone who controls his. Stage presence or or stage presentation, what you see, his public image, is incredibly controlled. So uh, so this was out of control and uh, and not something that he wanted to have happen. But I can't really speak too much to the church's influence, other than to say that this much with certainty: the church is very interested in Tom, very interested in in what he is doing, and. They will, you know, get themselves involved. I'm sure he has assistants, production assistants or uh, personal assistants or crew who are Scientologists. No question about it. But he can't staff an entire set with Scientologists. There aren't enough of them and they aren't well enough uh, trained in the, in the cinematic arts, right? So he's going to have to—and, of course, there's union and there's this and there's that. And that's why I know the church is not— too heavily involved in that because there's all kinds of mechanisms in place in Hollywood to very tightly control, unless you're doing indie productions, who gets to work on the set, who gets to come on the set, how long they have to be there, how much they're going to get paid, how many hours of the day they work, what are all the regulatory concerns with the COVID and any other safety issues, OSHA standards, et cetera. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of bureaucracy, paperwork and complication involved in making any movie. And I'm just trying to get that across because I don't think people think about that too much. We are talking about hundreds of people involved in this production, maybe thousands when you get into all the digital effects and stuff. So um, plus all the marketing and all that other stuff. But in terms of on, you know, what the what Tom's dealing with right now, it's a few, you know, it's it's a lot of people. And um, and they're not all Scientologists. They're not all controlled by Scientology. They can't all be vetted by Scientology. But I do imagine that as the executive producer, Cruz has quite a bit of latitude in terms of hiring, firing, and, and you know, control of the production. And he's the one, of course, who would set the tone for the whole production. Um, I want to also kind of point out, just as another little thing here to talk about, Cruise is 59 years old, okay, or 58 years old. I guess he's seven years older than I am. He um, is running this production, and this production is Mission Impossible 7. I mean, this guy's career is over, you know? I mean, all he's doing is he's stuck in this endless loop of Mission Impossible movies, and I don't know what else he's doing, you know? So uh, I know he gives to charities. I know there are good things that Tom Cruise's name is attached to. But, you know, what we're seeing here is not just pressure from the COVID situation, but I believe we are also seeing pressure from the fact that Tom is slipping into irrelevance. And he is working his ass off to try to avoid that by trying to shoot movies up in space, by trying to make this production happen. And then, of course, taking all the credit in a public forum because this is how he's going to act. Just like Trump, he's a narcissist, and he's going to act that way. So he's going to—it's always going to be about him. And even in his rants and raves, he talks about how he's on the phone with the heads of all these production companies. He's really big on name dropping. I don't know if you noticed that about Tom Cruise, but he's really big on. On making him puffing up his importance by telling you all the other really important people he's talking to, right? He did the same thing when he got that IAS Freedom Medal of Valor uh, back in 2004, where that you remember that turtleneck video, and uh, remember that's also Tom Cruise in reality. That's that's the real guy, right? He's nuts. And uh, when he went up on stage to get that award, he said to all these Scientologists, I have talked to all the leaders of, this, of the planet Earth. I have talked to all of them, the leaders of the leaders. And we got David Miscavige, and he's better than all of them. He's the best. He's a leader of leaders, you know. And you're just like, dude, you know. So he's, he's always like, you know, kind of showing off by, by comparison, I guess you could say. And uh, I don't know, I kind of find that, that a little bit annoying. Um, so that's my rant about Tom Cruise's rant. And I hope that that was um, somewhat interesting and gave you some information about the Scientology connections. Kevin Zay, there's a Scientology mission just south of me in Battle Creek, Michigan. I know you said missions are established for a specific task or purpose. What specific task would they be performing in a small city in a part of the state that has most likely less than a handful of practicing Scientologists. Okay, Kevin, thank you for this question. Actually, what you have there is an org, not a mission. Battle Creek is an official Church of Scientology class 4 or, or class 5 organization. and that means it's an official Church of Scientology which has org level status, which means they can train auditors as well as audit people up through the state of Clear, both both levels. Uh, with missions, with Scientology missions, they are smaller usually, uh, both in size and staffing, and they do not um, deliver auditor training. They deliver lower level courses, introductory level courses, some of the more advanced courses like the student hat course or the, um, well, actually, I think that's about as far as they go, actually, as the student hat, maybe, maybe uh, the TRs course. But they're really not focused on a lot of advanced training, and they don't make auditors. And that's the key difference between a mission and an org. Now, a mission um, is a term that's used—there's some confusion here, I know, because mission has two distinctly, completely separate definitions in Scientology. Um, So let's go ahead and talk about that. Uh, The first one is the mission, the service organization I talked about. Originally, they were called franchises, and— you know, that's uh, because that's what they are. They are a individual Scientologist who pays the church uh, tens of thousands of dollars in order to get the name rights or in the service marks and trademarks of Dynetics and Scientology. And they can then get to set up shop and they pay for it themselves. They rent the building. They, they hire the staff and they have to make it go all on their own. They get some direction from church management, but not a lot. That's the missions. Um, the orgs, are uh, the next step up from that. Missions get sometimes turned into orgs when they get kind of bumped up in status and they then become these higher level churches. And those are the ones that are getting daily direction from management. The missions are not. Their missions are not being called or or emailed or telexed every other day like the orgs are, okay? Um, That's the main difference in terms of management style or management structure is the missions are, are sort of the mission holder the guy who pays for it it's up to him as to whether it's going to make it or not and the church is somewhat interested but not missions open and close all the time all the time um, and now they hardly ever open at all there's there's really hardly any expansion of scientology going on anywhere in the world the missions are supposed to be the first frontline opening of us of an official organization in an area and it's supposed to expand and grow and then turn into an org and, it's, and then grow other missions around it is sort of the growth pattern of how Scientology is supposed to work. So, um, so that's your Scientology missions. Now, there's the Sea Org missions. And those are the things you asked about in your question where you talked about a thing having a specific task or purpose. Those are Sea Org missions. And that's not a building or a service organization. That's a few folks going out on a project in order to get certain targets done um, at the remote location. Usually it's a remote location. You can fire on base missions. You can be in Los Angeles on the big blue base and you can be fired on a mission on the base to go get some specific task or project done, like handling a huge backlog that's been accumulating for years with the filing or with address corrections or with some other big project that needs to get done, and you don't have regular crew to throw at it, so you fire a mission in order to go deal with it. You also have ethics missions or production missions which go out and kick ass and take names. Those are the kind that I usually was going out on. You have logistics types missions where you have to go buy property or work out some problem or situation or um, like, for example, when they were going to start making books, they had to go find a property to uh, make their publishing company, to put you know put their publishing facility in place, and that was a mission was fired in order to go find that building, find the one with the best price and the best location, et cetera, et cetera, and two Sea Org members just went out, and that's all they worked on 24-7 until they figured out where the, the publication house should be located, and then they purchased the property. And that was a mission. So missions can do almost anything. You even have courier missions where a C- or an individual Sea C- Org member will have to courier money or documents or something to, a, to an, a remote location. So lots of different kinds of missions. And those are Sea Org missions. They are almost always more than one person, except in the case of the Courier missions, where you can just send a a single person. There you go. Michael Blau. There never was a beginning. We living, thinking, conscious beings are used to a reality of cause and effect. In our attempts to explain the realities we face, we have invented two basic explanations. The first explanation lays the responsibility for existence on a supreme being. God, or whatever other name. If such a being exists, there can be no search for its source. That leads to an infinite regression of causes and effects until the original cause is identified. Such a force would have a nature that drove it to create whatever we experience as reality, including ourselves, our identities, and consciousness. A second explanation postulates a condition wherein the elements of existence interact and undergo changes resulting in the reality we face, including identity and consciousness. Either way, there is and always was something intrinsic in reality that exists and always has existed without prior cause. Obviously, the first explanation is religion with its system of explanations being called intelligent design, which you must call a belief. The second explanation is some variation of evolution the difference is small. With evolution, the intelligence is built into the intrinsic elements, ultimately a form of which has always existed, no beginning. Subscribing to this explanation would also be a belief. Can either of these explanations ever be proved? Well, damn, Mike. Uh, you know Nothing like the simple questions to throw my way, right? <laughs> um Okay. Can religion be proved? No. Can evolution be proved? Well, yes. We have indicators, markers, and, and uh, signs of it. You know, it is a uh, thought-out theory, actually a series of theories and, and hypotheses that have been being worked on for well over a century now. And um, evolution is a changing model of our understanding of how life develops. It is not necessarily a theory of where life comes from. There is a big difference there. You know, you do have the idea of, of everything going back to a single-celled organism and all that. Well, we have evidence of these things. We can show how this process works. It's not just a belief in the same way a God belief is. God is God. Is God. It's, a, it's, a, it's a spiritual entity that has no substance or meaning and has no experience beyond a subjective reality, which basically means it's all in your head. Now, pain is also all in your head, and pain is very, very real. So it's not a matter of just because something exists in your head that it's not real. However, it's not physical. There's no physical manifestation of God or gods. We only have things that we can interpret as physical interpretations of God or gods, and that's interpretation. That's signs reading. That's prophecy. That is... um, Reading tea leaves—that's you know—that's basically believing what you want to believe, what you feel you need to believe, what where that's your emotional needs driving your perception to see the world the way you need to see the world in order for it to make sense to you and for it to be something that you can live in—and that's that's religion—and uh, and really at the end of the day, that's really all religion is all about. Uh, I suppose you could say the same things about something like philosophy, but we tend to put a little bit more into the religious side when it comes to belief and investment, especially emotional investment, than we do with things like philosophy, where we're just sort of, you know, pondering ideas or pondering imponderables and, and bouncing ideas around. Uh, religion has other connotations because there is this more serious, you know, after effect of death that we have to deal with. And we have big questions about, you know, what's going to happen afterwards and all that. Okay, so belief sets—that's that's religion. Evolution is not that. Evolution has a lot of science behind it, but it is an evolving. <laughs> uh, Freudian slip there. It is an evolving process. Understanding what evolution is all about. There are competing schools. There's uh, genetics, epigenetics. There's all kinds of discoveries and new discoveries and rediscoveries and competing schools of thought in this area. Would we call these things beliefs? No, we call these things interpretations of physical evidence and reality. And this is a big, big difference between uh, the concept of religion as a belief and science as a belief. Science, ultimately, I guess you could say if you wanted to sort of get away with a semantic victory, you could sort of say that anything we think is a belief because it's in our head, but uh, that's sloppy thinking, right? Evidence-based thinking is not belief. We do use words to differentiate these two things for a reason. So you have facts versus opinions, evidence versus belief, right? These are two different spheres of activity. Evidence is what drives the belief in science. If you, want to, if you want to insist on using the word belief with science, then we have to then say, okay, fine. We'll give you belief. I, I, I'm, I'm only doing this for the sake of argument. I, I wouldn't normally give you belief because I don't think science is about belief. So, so evidence-based understandings of things point to external reasons outside of your head, right? Physical realities. I have evidence that these cards exist. I don't have evidence that there is a 1990 Ferrari parked right over there. There's nothing there. It's not, it's not here. There's no tiger in this room. However, I could tell you that I believe that there's a tiger under this table. I don't see it, but I think it's there. But there's no evidence of it. That's belief or delusion, depending on how far down you want to go on that scale. If I can point to it, if I can point to its markers, if I can point to its phenomena, if I can point to indicators of its existence, then I am talking about evidence. And uh, and of course, this has to be real, tangible, physical stuff or measurable realities, right? I can provide evidence. You can believe that you love somebody, for example. You can hold this belief that I, you know, of love, but I can measure how much love you think you have towards this person and I can create a scale and I can, I can write it down and I can say, okay, well, let's measure this and compare your feelings in relation to other things you have feelings about. And now we're not getting into, now we're talking about measurements of things. Now we're talking about evidence. Now we're talking about facts and we can talk about those facts and we can play with those facts and manipulate them and do things with them can't really do a whole lot with your beliefs, right, or your ideas. They just kind of sit there, and you're the one who's totally in charge of them. So anyway, I'm kind of going on and on here. But um, one last thing I wanted to say about this in terms of um, your your premise, basically, is there's never was a beginning, and you wanted my thoughts on this. So let me, um, you know, can either of these explanations be proved? Well, yeah, we, we're proving evolution every day. Um, can... You know, but you also premise this on the the reality that we experience, which is called cause and effect. That's how we interpret and experience the universe. It's not necessarily an objective statement of how the universe works. It's just our perception of it. Time is a perception we have. It's It's a way that we understand how we experience the universe, and it's not necessarily objective reality. And there's a lot of weird, crazy thinking here and a lot of, of, of uh, you know, quantum physics, uh, I guess, formulas to, to go diving down and all that when you really want to get into the, the meat and potatoes of this. But I'm just saying in a general sense, it's just a perception. It's just a rea- it's it's our experience of reality. It's not necessarily true. So when you talk about things having earlier beginnings and earlier beginnings and earlier beginnings, that's they don't necessarily have earlier beginnings. It is possible that things have always just been here as we understand that concept of time, or it's possible that there's an earlier beginning, I suppose you could say, or a beginning where things before that, time doesn't have any meaning. Or, or understanding or, or, or significance in, in how you would be describing the nature of reality, let's say, prior to, let's say, a Big Bang, which we can only suppose or theorize about, right? We have no clocks. We have no cameras. We have no time machine we can send back and look at any of this stuff. It's all theoretical understanding. So it's not solid nail down science, but there's a lot of very, very, very good possibilities that we understand what was going on in the universe all the way up to this point of this Big Bang. But uh, given our current understandings of how the universe is put together and the way we perceive it, we have no way of going prior to that moment. But it's possible that before the Big Bang, there was no moment. And let me give you an analogy, I believe from Stephen Hawking, that helps demonstrate this point. We go north on planet Earth or south, right? All the way to the poles. You can be anywhere on this planet and you can point north unless you are standing specifically and exactly on on the North Pole. At which point, how do you point to more north? How do you go more north than the North Pole? You can't, that's the end. There is no more north to experience. You've, you've, you've hit the top, the peak of the north. That's the beginning of it. And that's the same. It's a similar analogy with time. You can go back to a point where time is beginning. And before that, there is no before that because it just doesn't, it's not, a, it's not even a term that has applicability to what reality was prior to that moment. So it's just something to screw with your head and think about, okay? It's just food for thought, but it's always sort of given me this, huh, kind of idea. And I thought I'd share that with you, too, since you gave me a rather complicated question. (laughs) I thought I'd throw that back at you. So uh, let me know what you think, Mike. Pam Saba, happy belated birthday. I love your channel. Came for the Scientology, stayed for the critical thinking. As I'm sure many people are, I'm frustrated by the conversations I'm having with the Trump supporters in my life, specifically people who find ways to defend his bullying, inappropriate tweets, handling of the pandemic, name-calling, all of it. I believe if there's to be any healing, we need to find ways to hang in there with those we disagree with the most. I need a strategy. Could you share how you're handling this? Thank you very much for uh, staying for the critical thinking and uh, for your question, uh, Pam. Really appreciate this. So, okay, Trump supporters, basically what we're talking about at this point. okay? I mean, Trump's out. He's out as president. It's done. It's a done deal. And he's leaving. If there are still people who are, quote, unquote, loyal to him, going on and on in a mad raid about how the election was stolen from him and all this— These are people who are basically in a cult mindset. I mean, let's be honest, okay? At this point, it's pretty stupid. I mean, there shouldn't be any politician that we are all rapturously adoring and worshiping. These are people who have jobs. We hire them through a voting process and put them in positions of power so they can help regulate the economy and the laws of the country and our trade, and foreign affairs—that's what we hire them for. That's what we put them there for. This, you know, this this whole concept of falling in love with politicians, worshiping politicians, rapturously adoring politicians—it's sick. It's actually sick. And uh, we really, really, really need to knock that off. Now, that all being said, <laughs> you don't get anywhere with these people talking in them that way. Okay. Um, I just wanted to get a little bit off my chest before I got into this. Okay. So as far as, um, and you might want to, too, with friends you know, that you have, because you can't rant to these people about Trump any more than you could rant to Scientologists about L. Ron Hubbard or Tom Cruise. You can't. You're not going to get away with it. These are people who are not interested in any way in hearing anything critical about Donald Trump. So just skip it, don't go there, leave it alone. Eventually, most of it will undo itself, just to be totally honest with you, right? If you give it time, because Trump's out. And if they wanna keep following Donald Trump as a private individual and watch his path to prison or whatever's gonna happen to him, well, okay, that's their choice. Your questions for you are a couple. First, number one is, how important is this person to your existence? Two, based on how important they are to your existence, how much is this going to be a problem? Um, And you have to honestly assess that because just because it ires you or irks you or annoys you doesn't mean it has to be a problem in the relationship. You do have the capability of just parking that crap and leaving it alone. And in many, 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 many cases, that is the best way to go about this, is just leave it alone. You don't have to be on a mission to convert these people or run an intervention or do some kind of like a cult intervention or something, right? You don't have to do any of that. You can just have a relationship with them that is... For lack of a better way of putting this, I'm going to use a Scientology term of good roads, good weather, you know, of just talking about the weather, talking about good stuff, talking about things you guys know you can agree on. You know, there are people who know that they agree to disagree, who know that there are things they are going to fight about if given the latitude to bring these topics up and start riling each other up about them. Um, Sometimes... Those people are able to come to resolutions by deciding, you know what, let's just agree to disagree and let's not talk about this. And let's just not make a thing about it. I'm going to think one way, you're going to think another. Why don't we bond on the things we agree on and can talk about? Recipes, TV or entertainment, sports, uh, other news, uh, other foreign affairs news, uh, other political things, although, you know, crafts, hobbies, I mean, job. Family, kids, fishing, (laughs) you know, like anything else. Especially now let's get into some real advice here, especially if you can draw out the what what Steve Hassan calls the pre-cult personality. Okay? I'm trying to summarize a lot of stuff here. There's there's books on this stuff, okay? But basically you have a person who Prior to their commitment to Donald Trump and their loyalty to Donald Trump, they had a different personality or a different way of looking at the world. Maybe they were hardcore GOP or hardcore evangelical or hardcore something else. That's a different problem. Maybe a similar one, depending on the person you're talking about here. But um, or maybe none of those things. Maybe maybe they just came fresh in on the Trump boat and they just went all in on that. Um, but there's a pre-Trump personality there that you can appeal to, that you can talk to, that you can try to bring out again, right? Remember those movies we used to go to? Remember that time, right? You know, focusing attention and effort and, um, and future efforts on the things you do agree on or can find common cause on. That's basically what I'm trying to say that will help draw out their pre-Trump, pre-cult personality, Okay. Um, this is true, of course, with anybody, any cultist anywhere in any group or any, any extremist. So um, so I'm not talking about trying to live in denial. I'm, trying to ta- I'm talking about trying to live at all with these folks. And if you're trying to constantly bring this topic up or they're constantly bringing the topic up, then then you have a problem. And you have to deal with that problem either by getting that problem off the table— entirely by not dealing with it, by just, okay, why why don't we not talk about Trump today? Why don't we talk about something else? Or why don't we relate on or connect on other things? Like I said, maybe hopefully prior things that the person was really interested in and passionate about, hobbies, sports, et cetera. Um, Or, you know, the other option here is go all in and just just take it. Just take it all. You just have the conversation and just duke it out. But I don't think too many people are going to have very much success at that. And um, and and because it's, it's... Trump is a symbol of what's going on with this person. There's more... There are emotional needs underneath that that Trump is fulfilling. And unless you can dig in and find out from this person telling you what those emotional needs are, you're not going to dethrone Trump off his dais or his pedestal for them. He represents something that is very, very significant, meaningful, and important for them and their version of reality. So if you're going to duke it out or have that conversation and decide, okay, we're going to deal with this now and I'm going to change you, Well, then you're going to have to dig, and you're going to have to dig deep, and you're going to have to have this person's trust, and you're going to have to have this person's willingness to communicate to you, and you're not going to ever get that by yelling and screaming at them or telling them how wrong they are. So you see why these two things don't go together so well, right? Um, And that's why I say maybe leave it alone, right? Because that's counseling level, that's therapy level work. And, um, and even counselors and therapists are not that great at it most of the time. So it's, a, it's hard work to dig into somebody's skull and change who they are or how they see the world for real. Um, and you got to understand that when you're dealing with people who still at this point, at this late date, are still in this passionate froth about Trump, you're not going to touch that, you know, not unless you're really, really good. Or you have an amazing relationship with this person. And if you did, if you did, you probably wouldn't be asking me this question. <laughs> so, so that's why when I say to you, maybe leave it alone, I'm not trying to put that there as this big, okay, let's just deny the problem exists and we won't ever touch it and we won't ever deal with it and we'll just let this dead fish sit on the table. That's not the attitude I'm talking about having in relation to this. I'm, I'm instead saying, look that dead fish is not just sitting on the table, it's nailed to the table. And it's not coming off, and that it's just going to sit there. So you can talk about it, you can complain about it, you can bitch about it, you can try to get the person to take the dead fish off the table, but that's a lot of work. So instead, if you want to continue having a relationship with the person, maybe you have to just kind of hold your nose a little bit and leave the dead fish alone, Okay. Anyway, I don't know. I hope that's practical advice. I hope that's somewhat useful. Let me know what you think and if there's anything other else I can say or clarify about what I'm, what I'm saying here. Dr. Robert Tobias. Many years ago, I worked with a Scientology recruiter who was always trying to get coworkers, myself included, to come with him to the New York City Church. Aside from his rather unique belief system, which I now recognize in retrospect as pure Scientology— I remember him always recommending that if you injure yourself, that you should always go back and touch the point of injury on your body back to the point of contact for its healing qualities. For example, if you stub your toe on a table, you should touch your toe to the point of impact to take away the pain. In all of my reading and viewing on the topic of Scientology, I have never seen this mentioned. Is this a Scientology belief? You bet it is. It is called a touch assist. Actually, it is called a contact assist, sorry, a contact assist. And, and you described it perfectly. That's exactly what you're trying to do. It's, 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 if, if, if this is a wall and this is me hitting the wall and now I'm hurt, now my hand hurts because I just punched this wall, a contact assist is me purposefully recontacting the point of impact or injury with the exact physical universe location Which caused the injury. And the physical and the exact location is important. So, if you had a bike accident, for example, you got to take your bike back out to the place you had the accident, preferably, and run through the motions of the bike accident. Now, somebody would help you if they had to maneuver the bike or move your body around or something, and you can get help like that. But most of the time, contact assists are much, much simpler and much easier because they just involve a a hand or a finger or an arm or, you know, I bumped myself or I hurt myself or you bump your knee or something like that. And you do a contact assist. This is something that I learned when I was like five years old. And it's rife through Scientology. I'm really surprised you couldn't find anything on this because it's it's all throughout the literature. And, um, and that's what it is, right? And Hubbard, uh, the theory of this is that the location and the repeating of the motions run the locate, run the incident or the pain out of your reactive mind through the repetitive process of contacting or touching the area again and again and again. That's the theory of it. It's total bullshit. Please don't do contact assist. They don't work. It's all just mental, you know, screwing around. But uh, that is what a contact assist is. All right, let's do some flash answers. Sean McMullen. Have you seen the second season of The Boys? If so, what do you think of the Scientology-type organization one member joins to rehabilitate his public image? Sean, I think I actually talked about this in an earlier Q&A, so I'm just going to say here that I loved it. I thought it was hilarious. It was obviously Scientology being parodied on The Boys, and it was wonderful. They did a perfect job. And the fact that uh, the—well, I won't give a spoiler. I'll just say the ending was satisfying. Barney Saunders. Why do you think David Miscavige had a dog dressed up in uniform and he forced other Sea Org members to salute it? Does the fact he used a dog have any relevance to Scientology? Hey, Barney, thanks for the question. I uh, know the dog has no relevance to Scientology specifically. What you see there is a perfect example of a, of a basically psychotic person, David Miscavige, wetting his sadism on his subordinates by enforcing behavior on them. He thinks it's a joke. He thinks people are his playthings, and them having to salute a dog was a sick joke that he made up and enforced on his subordinates in order to exert his power and control over them. It's really that simple, and it really is that sick. Simon, I am not a Scientologist, but I have heard about Scientology through various media such as South Park. Do you recall there being a large reaction inside the church that the public Scientologists were aware about? Did you hear about South Park's scuffles with Scientology when you were inside, or did you hear about the events after leaving? I heard all about the South Park thing after I left. It was totally locked down in the church. We did not hear anything really about it. At least I didn't. Now, it doesn't help that I was on the RPF when that episode came out, so I wasn't exactly out and about in the Scientology world. But normally speaking, in any destructive cult, and certainly in Scientology, they don't want members talking about what the enemy is doing. And make no doubt, Trey and Matt were definitely enemies of Scientology uh, after they put that episode out there, and the church wanted them gone. And uh, that's why the church enforced that um, Isaac Hayes had to quit the show. Uh, He didn't want to, but he had to. The church forced him to. And uh, I think they even tried to get Trey and Matt in a lot of trouble, but it didn't work uh, because Trey and Matt are a hell of a lot smarter than anyone in Scientology. Okay, guys, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and watching. I hope you will check out my podcast with John ATAC this week that I just posted yesterday. And I hope you guys will have an incredible holiday week this week. I really do wish you all the best. I know these are tough times that we are living in right now. I'm hoping that for most of you, relief is right around the corner or things are not as bad as they're being made out to be for you. And I hope that uh, we are all looking forward to a better 2021. There will be definitely be more shows after before the end of the year here, so we'll talk more about that. Thanks for coming around, guys, and inviting me into your home for this week. I really appreciate it. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.